the two sweetest words. In the English language, or Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and find Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, as we think this morning about this subject. Jesus saves. When I was a student at the Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, John Wimber would periodically come and give guest lectures in our seminars. You'll perhaps recognize uh, the name John Wimber. He was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, which now has become a denomination in itself. John Wimber came to faith in Christ at age 29. He grew up in a non-Christian home, a non-religious home. He shared his testimony in class. He said, when I was a boy, I would ride my bicycle by this little church there in our neighborhood. He said it was in the dark days of the Second World War. And they had a sign on the marquee in front of this little church that said, Jesus saves. And he was so unchurched, he had no idea what that phrase, Jesus saves, meant. He said, in our household, we save tenfold. We save tenfold for the war effort. We would save it up and take it to the place where it'd be turned into uh, whatever they needed in the war effort. And he said, I wondered to myself, what does Jesus save? What does Jesus save? Well, that's, uh, that's the topic for our consideration this morning. Jesus saves. And I want to ask two questions this morning, and I want to answer them from the scriptures. The first question is, who is Jesus? And the second question is, what does Jesus save? Those are our two questions. Who is Jesus? It's important that we know who Jesus is. And what does Jesus save? Our text is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21. The angel said to Joseph about his bride-to-be Mary. They were not yet married. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So let's answer the first question first. Question one, who is Jesus? Answer, Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the angel said, give him the name Jesus. The name Jesus means savior. Now what makes Jesus the savior? Don't other world religions advocate a savior of some sort? Don't they proclaim that their religious expression is a way of salvation? Yes, indeed they do. 
But Jesus is unique among all the great religious leaders of, the, of human history. He is unique among men. First of all, I want you to see with me that Jesus is unique in his birth. And we'll see this in this text right here in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. This is the account of the birth of Jesus. Now, in verse 18, we learn of the role of the Holy Spirit in his supernatural conception. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was found to be pledged to Joseph. That is, they were engaged to be married, but before they came together in the sexual union, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is unique of all the people who've ever lived in his conception and birth. Uh, we find that Mary, perhaps a 14 or 15 year old girl at this point, a virgin, found conceived in her womb the child Jesus through the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit of God. Now it was unspeakable uh, in that day for a person, a, a young virgin, like a young lady like her uh, to be pregnant out of wedlock. She was assumed that she was not a virgin. Verse 19 says, but Joseph, her husband, that is her husband-to-be, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He wasn't going to make a big deal about this and embarrass her. He was just going to quietly sever the relationship because this is not uh, acceptable. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And this is what the angel said to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There's never been a a birth like the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we read in verses 22 and 23 that this birth, this miraculous birth, this virginal birth was prophesied 800 years previously by the prophet Isaiah, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which is one of the many names given to God the Son, which means God with us. So here we see that Jesus is the God-man. During the days of his public ministry, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at me, listen to me, follow me. And so we see this was prophesied uh, many centuries earlier, then verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. It took him a great deal of courage for, for uh, Joseph to do this. Verse 25, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son 
And then as the angel instructed him, he gave him the name Jesus. Mary didn't choose the name Jesus. Joseph didn't choose the name Jesus. Joseph gave him the name Jesus, but he only gave him the name Jesus because he was instructed by the angel of the Lord to give him the name Jesus. So as we think this morning about Jesus saves, we can say that Jesus is a savior because he is unique in his birth. There's never been a child born into this world like the miraculous virginal birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a supernatural birth. But not only is Jesus unique in his birth, he is unique in his life. Uh, in the sense that Jesus, though he was tempted in every way to sin, to break the law of God, Jesus never sinned. Now, the scripture says that all the rest of us have sinned against God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but not Jesus. Yes, Jesus faced temptation. We read about it in the gospel accounts, especially in Matthew chapter 4. We read about it in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus faced the greatest uh, trial of his life as he was facing uh, crucifixion on the following day. But Jesus never gave in to temptation. Jesus lived a sinless life. Now, no one else can make that kind of claim for himself or herself. But Jesus can because he did live a perfect life. No other world religious leader can make that kind of claim, but Jesus did. So Jesus is unique in his birth. Jesus is unique in his life. Uh, Jesus is unique in his death. Because when Jesus died, he died the death of a common criminal on a cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Now, not unique in the sense that others had not died by means of crucifixion. Crucifixion was the peculiar method of capital punishment used during the, by the Romans during the days of the Roman Empire. And across the, the, the years of Roman history, there were literally thousands upon thousands of people who died at the hands of the Romans by means of crucifixion. So when we say that Jesus was unique in his death, it's not he was unique in that he died on the cross and no one else ever died on the cross, but Jesus is unique in the sense that when Jesus died on the cross, he went as the sinless, perfect lamb of God who was slain in the heart and mind of God from the very foundation of the world for the remission of the sins of Adam's fallen race. He sacrificed his life on that cross. He shed his blood. He suffered, not for crimes which he had done, but he suffered for our sins, our rebellion, our choosing to go our own way against God. And the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross died in our place as our substitute, paying a sin debt that you and I could never pay. And so he did it to save us. The apostle Peter put it this way. The death of Jesus was the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 
The Apostle Paul said, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that, him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died in our place as our substitute, buried in his own body. Our sin, our guilt, the holy wrath of God against sin, which every one of us would have to pay had Jesus not paid our sin debt for us. Jesus is unique in his birth. He is unique in his life. He is unique in his death. And Jesus is unique in his resurrection. Now we know on at least three occasions during the public ministry of Jesus that he raised from the dead three different individuals, but all of them later died. But Jesus arose on the third day. He emerged from the tomb triumphant over death never to die again. Jesus is unique in his resurrection. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we are resurrection people. We have the hope of eternal life because Jesus has won the victory over hell and death and the grave. No one else could say that but Jesus. No one is like Jesus. He is unique. You can't compare Jesus with anyone else who ever, who ever lived in human history. Now, you can take some of the world's great uh, uh, men, and uh, if you examine their life and you examine human history, you will see, well, there are others who were equally as great. Uh, let's just start in the Bible here. If you take uh, Simon Peter, the great apostle, there's equally great to Simon Peter is the Apostle Paul. If we go to the world of military conquest, we can say there's Alexander the Great, but equally great with Alexander, who conquered the known world at a young age, was Napoleon Bonaparte, who conquered all of Europe at a young age. In the world of baseball, there's Babe Ruth, the home run king who was surpassed and equally great, Hank Aaron. In the world of space exploration, there's a John Glenn, the first American to orbit the earth, but there's Neil Armstrong, the first astronaut, the first American to set foot on the moon. From American history, there's George Washington, the father of our country, our first president, but equally great is Abraham Lincoln who led our republic through the dark days of the war between the states. In the world of English literature, there's John Milton, the Baptist bard, but equally great with Milton are the works of William Shakespeare. Just take your area, just take your person. We could go on and on naming great men and women from history who did great exploits in their particular field, but there's someone equally great. But when it comes to talking about Jesus, there's no one to compare with Jesus. He is the incomparable Christ. Jesus stands alone. Jesus is unique. Jesus is supreme. I don't know who wrote this. I picked this up on a gospel track in the lobby of Lakeview Baptist Church. I wish I could have thought of this. Author unknown. More than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. 
This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of his country in which he lived, and that was during his exile in childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the waves as, as pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book. Yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that had been written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. Once each week, multitudes congregate at worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man multiplies more and more. Though time has spread 1,900 years between the people of this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, he still lives. His enemies could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the risen personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is the incomparable Christ. Charles Lamb said, if all the illustrious men were gathered together and Shakespeare should enter their shining company, they would all rise to pay him honor. But if Jesus should come, we should all kneel to worship him. And we would, for we should. In the Old Testament, Jesus was the Messiah who was promised. In the New Testament, Jesus is the Messiah who is revealed to us in the pages of the 27 books of our New Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the Son of David, the King of the Jews. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the miracle worker. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the friend of sinners. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is the Word which became flesh and lived for a while among us. In the book of the Acts, Jesus is the resurrected Lord of the church. In Paul's letter to the Romans, Jesus is our justifier. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus is the head of the body, his church. In 2 Corinthians, Jesus is our sin bearer. In, in Galatians, Jesus is the redeemer who redeems us from the curse of the law. 
In Ephesians, Jesus is our peace who reconciles us to God and to one another. In Philippians, Jesus is exalted to the highest place. In Colossians, Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Jesus is our coming King. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. In Titus, Jesus is our blessed hope. In Philemon, Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of, the, of God's glory. In James, Jesus is the wisdom of God. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jesus is the light of the world. And praise his holy name in the revelation. Jesus is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And someday every knee shall bow before him and confess that he is Lord. The angel said to Joseph, give him the name Jesus. Give him the name Jesus. He is the God-man and his name means Savior. And we are well advised to sing, as we did this morning, Jesus saves. But I said to you there are two questions I want to ask of this text, and I want this text to give us an answer. The first question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the God-man. The second question is, what does Jesus save? But it might better be asked, not what does Jesus save, but who does Jesus save? And the answer found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 is, Jesus saves sinners from sin and death. Jesus saves sinners from sin and death. Look again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And you're to give him the name Jesus, Savior, because. Because he will save his people from their sins. Whatever else we can say about Jesus, we must say this. He is Savior. Now, there's some well-meaning but misguided people in our world who want to make Jesus something other than a Savior or the Savior from sin. Some want to make Jesus a humanitarian. And they base that on the fact that during the days of his public ministry, Jesus went about doing good. He did many mighty miracles. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear, and he made the mute to speak, and he cast out demons. He did many extraordinary deeds of kindness, of humanitarian goodness, and they want Jesus to be a human, humanitarian and nothing more. There are others who want Jesus to be a philosopher teacher. Now certainly Jesus was a teacher. And uh, he was an authoritative teacher. We, we read, for instance, when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount given for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that the people said of what they had just heard and of Jesus who had just taught them, this man is not like our scribes, the teachers of the law. This man teaches with authority. And, of course, he taught with authority because he was 
and is and always will be the God-man. But uh, teaching does not define the ministry of Jesus. Others would like to make Jesus a moral example. And of course, Jesus is the greatest moral example we we could wish for. Tempted, but never yielded to temptation. He always, and at every point over the course of his 33 years as the God-man here before he ascended back to heaven, he always kept the law down to the most minute detail. And we can be thankful for that because had Jesus not kept the law, then he would not be an adequate substitutionary sacrifice. But Jesus kept the law. Perfect in every way. He is an example for us to follow. But we need more than an example because we don't keep the law. We do have an Adamic sin nature. And no matter how hard we try, we'll never measure up. We've got to have outside intervention. The human race has failed at this point. And so with thanksgiving to God for the good works that Jesus did, for the marvelous things that he taught, and for his perfect moral example, we must look far beyond that to find the real mission for which Jesus uh, saves. And, and the answer is found uh, right, right here in the scripture. Look again to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. Now, who are the people who've sinned? Well, we'll start right here with your pastor. I am a sinner. And let's go to pew one and two and three all the way to the back. Everybody in this room is a sinner. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that no one is righteous. No, not even one. The Bible says that the heart of mankind is deceitful and desperately wicked. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. All of our righteousness, that is the good things we do. All all of our righteousness in the sight of our thrice holy God is like filthy rags. We all stand guilty before our holy God. Every one of us. There are no exceptions. And so that's why the angel told Joseph, give him the name Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness, and therefore God has sent us a Savior. So, Jesus saves sinners from their sin and we come with a sin nature when you and I came into this world you were born with a sin nature you were born a rebel hostile to God 
You didn't become a sinner when you committed your first sin. You came as a guilty sinner and you, you expressed your sin nature because you have a sin nature. And so Jesus came to save sinners. So let's just ask this question. Who did Jesus save during the days of his public ministry? Now I've just got to be just very suggestive here, not exhaustive. But for instance, we read on, in the Gospels that one day Jesus was uh, uh, healing people and he was in, in this house and there were crowds pressing in on him and uh, there was this paralytic and he was unable to get himself into the presence of Jesus and we don't know the, the backstory, just have to kind of read between the lines here, but perhaps uh, he had four friends who cared about him and volunteered to take him. Perhaps he persuaded these four friends to take him to see Jesus. And they go to the, they go to the house where Jesus is healing and they couldn't get in. And so these four friends climb up on the roof of this flat house. They tear up the roof and they put their friend on a mat and they let this, this paralyzed friend down on the mat in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus did heal this paralyzed man, but before he healed him, what did he say to him? Before he said, take up your mat and walk, this is what he said. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The paralyzed man's greatest need was not to walk physically, but to have his sins forgiven. And Jesus saved him from his sins. Then there's a Levi. We know him as Matthew. In Luke's gospel, he's identified as Levi. Levi was a, he was a tax collector. Tax collectors in the first century world in which Jesus uh, uh, lived were notoriously uh, corrupt. They were taking money on the side, siphoning off some of the tax money for themselves. And Jesus said to, to Levi, come follow me. And Levi followed Jesus. And so Levi decides that he wants to introduce some of his other friends to Jesus. So he throws a party at his house. And all of these uh, less than desirable people show up at Levi's house for this party where Jesus is the guest of honor. And the religious leaders uh, get wind of it and they criticize Jesus for hanging out with sinners and Jesus replied, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we find Levi and perhaps some of his friends were forgiven and saved that night. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus and the twelve were making their way uh, from the south to the north, and they just, Jesus decided to take them through Samaria, something you wouldn't do. Good Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. They'd go around Samaria. But Jesus took the 12 through Samaria, and they stopped in the middle of a day at a well outside Sychar. And Jesus sent the 12 in to get food. And while Jesus was at the well, this Samaritan woman came up, and Jesus engaged her in conversation, which was, which was a violation of protocol of that day. First of all, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans and men didn't talk to women. But Jesus engaged her in conversation. They talked about all manner of things about where you worship and the Jews say here and the Samaritans say no, somewhere else. 
But eventually, this woman came to put her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she went back into the village and told the village, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she had done quite a bit. She'd been married five times and the man she was currently living with was not her husband. We would say she was a notorious sinner, but she believed and was saved. And the whole town people came out and they said, you can read about this in John's Gospel chapter four. We know that this man, we know that this Jesus really is the savior of the world. Let me just give you one more. There's so many we could, we could identify from the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was the, there was the, the criminal on the cross, one side of Jesus. Actually, there was one on either side of Jesus. They were both criminals. They were both deserving of their, of their punishment. And, and initially, they both railed against Jesus, but eventually, one of those, on, on one of those crosses, he saw something different about Jesus, and he saw his own wickedness and his own sinfulness. And he, he recognized that Jesus was no mere man. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to this repentant criminal nailed to a cross adjacent to his cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. How do, how do you let into paradise a person who apparently has lived a very wicked criminal life and then on the last day of his life, the last hours of his life, he receives a pardon from Jesus and admittance into the kingdom of God. And before the sun set that day, Jesus walked arm in arm through the gates of glory with a redeemed criminal. Because Jesus saves us from sin and death. Jesus is the Savior. And the cross is the focal point in the salvation of sinners. And on the cross, Jesus died in our place, taking our sins upon himself. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the sinless Son of God for guilty, hell-bound sinners. Jesus spoke from the cross seven times. And one of those sayings was, it is finished. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The sin debt has been paid in full. The sin debt that no one could pay except a perfect sacrifice has been paid in full because I am that sin, that sinless lamb of God and in my death I have paid that sin debt. I have taken upon myself all the fury of the wrath of God against Adam's fallen race. I have taken it upon myself that all who will trust in me may be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled to God the Father and be ushered into the eternal kingdom of God. What other world religious leader can say that? No one. 
What other human endeavor can achieve that? No one. Jesus is the God-man who saves sinners from their sins and from eternal death to be cast into the lake of fire. So how are sinners saved? Well, in repentance and faith. It's so simple we often stumble at it. We think it, it can't be this simple. That I just, I, I repent, I turn away from my sins, I forsake my sins, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, and that will gain me right standing with God. It, isn't there something I have to do? Don't I need to go to Sunday school uh, 50 Sundays in a row or give a double tithe for 10 years or something to earn right standing? No, no, no. Not at all. Scripture says it's repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. Just repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And all who repent and believe will be saved. Without exception. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, including you. Jesus will save you. Not against your will. He's not going to kick the door down and come into your life against your will. But if you'll humble yourself like a little child, that's what Jesus said, you've got to become like a little child. And turn away from your sins and embrace Jesus, you can be saved. And I know that in an assembly of this many people, there are some here today who've never yet come to Jesus. You've never turned from your sins. You never put your faith and trust in the finished atoning work of Jesus on the cross. But you can today. Today, if you hear the voice of the Spirit of God, God, do not harden your heart. This very well may be the last opportunity you ever have to repent and believe. We don't know that. Only God knows the future. But God has brought you to this worship service on this October morning that you might hear those two sweet and precious words, Jesus saves. And you can be saved today. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus while you have time. Come to Jesus now while the Spirit of God is working in your life, drawing you to him. This is your hour of salvation. Come. Jesus said, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Jesus stands with open arms and invites sinners, regardless of how far away from God you are, to come to him. He is no respecter of persons. You come 
he'll receive you. But as many as received him, to them gives you the power to become the children of God, to them who believe on his name. In a moment, we stand to sing our song of decision, just as I am without one plea. That's how you come, just like you are. You don't clean your life up and then come. You come just like you are. And when you come, Jesus receives you. And he'll clean your life up. And he'll make you new. And he'll transform you. Our pastors will be at the head of each child to pray with you and to show you how you can know that you know that you know that you are rightly related to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let us help you do that today. We stand and sing. Come while we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.